0: We'll be referring to all our our readings this uh, morning. Uh, The text that's really going to start us off, though, is Romans 12, uh, that uh, gives us a a wonderful uh, litany of powerful verses to live by. Oh, look, I I put to love by, typo, oops. Uh, But it's not just a coincidence, because the point of these Uh, verses is is really to highlight uh, that uh, our life's work is really to be a labor of love. Uh, And that's, I think, a nice tie in this labor day when we uh, tend to think of uh, labor in so much of the world as scratching and clawing and fighting to get ahead. Uh, That the Christian's labor, the Christian's life uh, is really a a labor of love uh, that rejoices in the the work Christ has done for us that frees us to just love life and to live but life uh, that much more powerfully thereby. Well, as you go through, I don't know if you, you necessarily heard it uh, in our epistle lesson but it does just break out into a a series of really powerful one-liners that you can take it verse by verse uh, almost and just uh, walk through any number of great personal mission statements, if you will, or verses to live by that you could uh, put on your bathroom mirror or put on uh, a card in your wallet and just say, this is my motto, this is what I'm going to live by. Just take, for example, verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I mean, that kind of sums it up, right? Uh, You can't go wrong making that your mission statement. And it highlights also uh, so much about what it means to love. And as we walk through all of these, it's a great example of uh, how important it is. Uh, to study scripture, because we were just talking in my Bible class on Wednesday night how so much of the world just kind of assumes they know what the Bible says. Well, you know, you love one another. That's the message of the Bible. Uh, but when you actually dig down deep into it, you see the wealth and the richness of, well, what does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to let love be genuine? Well, it doesn't mean just uh, uh, seek pleasure. Or enjoyment, that's not the kind of love that God's Word talks about. That true love, genuinely love, doesn't embrace what is evil, no matter how enjoyable it is or how much you may like it. True love hates what is evil and holds fast to what is good. That's what it means uh, to love, to hate the sin and love the sinner as Christ showed, hating what is evil but holding on uh, to uh, his creation enough to to give his life to save them. Verse 10 is another one. Love one anotherly with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, that's a snappy little verse that just gives you a great perspective on this is what we're about to love one another with brotherly uh, affection and strive to outdo one another. And just keep that verse in your mind all day and see how it affects you. Uh, What a way it makes a a positive person out of you. I think Paul must have had a brother or at least been acquainted with it because you know how he ties brotherly affection with outdoing one another. Uh, There's that competitive uh, spirit, that little sibling rivalry uh, written into that, which of course is not making love uh, in service of competition. So, you know, ah, I'm better than you, I loved more than you. Uh, that Rather, it's taking that competitive spirit to use it in the service of love, uh, to give us an extra motivation uh, to be more loving. Verse 11 Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Wake up every morning with that uh, on your lips and go about that as your mission for the day. And and, oh, what a great difference that would make! It highlights the continuing theme in Paul's writing that we're not just serving one another. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. It is Him who you serve. And knowing that you're serving God in your vocation is sure to light a fire under you. That you don't grow slothful in zeal but are fervent in spirit knowing that what you're doing, you're doing for God. I'm just touching lightly on all of these because we've got a lot more to go. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Boom, boom, boom. Three great bullet points. They again, uh, it can hit home for you every day uh, to guide you because we all face tribulation. Uh, enough trials and, and tribulation to really throw us off track. Uh, Paul encourages us to be patient, remembering the hope we have that allows us to rejoice. And how do we remember that hope? By being constant in prayer. In tribulation, in hope, through prayer. Con- being constant uh, in prayer, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation. Uh, verse 13, uh, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, it focuses on the perspective of who we're serving, that uh, these are God's holy people, the church. It is God's holy, one holy Christian and apostolic church made holy by his blood. And as we seek to show hospitality, welcome and love uh, to the people, we're meeting the needs of God's chosen people. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. This, As verse 13 kind of took a financial uh, uh, focus on things for people who have that gift, if you have a musical gift, uh, the idea of living in harmony with one another is a powerful one. Uh, To think about how we use the diverse gifts God has given us to live together uh, like a beautiful symphony, uh, taking regard for where each other is at. Uh, that you uh, don't uh, weep with those who rejoice or rejoice with those who weep, Uh, but in sensitivity, looking to where others are at and, and harmonizing together with them in a beautiful way. Verse 16, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. What an important fundamental thing to remember in our approach to life each day. Uh, associate with the lowly. Don't be conceited. Uh, To remember each day, to to not put ourselves above others, but to view each and every person we meet as our equal. Someone we can learn from. uh, Someone who we have an obligation to. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. A great reminder uh, to... uh, do everything we can to, to live at peace with others, also being mindful that it doesn't all depend on us, that some people will choose to be in conflict with us. And that's not our fault. Now, all of these verses are, are powerful expressions of what it means to love one another, of fundamental ideas to, uh, that any one of which could be the whole focus of a sermon, indeed the whole focus of our life. Uh, to stress uh, this aspect of love, to learn it uh, and really do it. Um, but it's also hard. It takes more than just reading and say, oh, that's a good idea, I'll do that. Uh, we can't perfectly put these into practice immediately. And uh, the fact is, these are just the easy ones. You maybe noticed that I left a few verses out Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, uh, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And the lengthy portion at the end, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Unless we think that's the goal is to torment them, it says do not overcome, uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The fact is we're, we're called to love even those who don't love us. And that makes it even harder in some ways. But in some ways, it actually makes it easier because it highlights the fundamental truth about why we love. Uh, These verses expose the reality uh, that we love because we've been freed from fear, that we don't have to respond to those who are against us out of fear, Uh, And that's an an important feature because uh, fear dominates our lives, I think, a lot more than we often realize. Uh, The fear of loss is a powerful underlying motivation in a great deal, and it influences us very, very negatively because fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. That's not from the Bible, it's from Star Wars, uh, but you got it. Uh, the engineers are keeping up with me here. Uh, but uh, uh, the truth is, is there. Fear does not uh, impact us positively. Uh, when we're afraid of loss, it drives us to do negative things. Uh, to try and protect ourselves that are not necessary for us who are in Christ because we are guarded by him, are indeed counterproductive. Uh, We're not there yet, actually. Uh, That uh, We can see this, for example, uh, in the public setting, uh, in culture wars. There's so much conflict because people are scared that the other side will win. And you always see where that leads to, and people compromising their own principles to win at any cost. The ends justifies the means. We're at war, so we gotta do whatever it takes. Cross whatever lines we thought we would never cross, because we can't afford to lose. It impacts us. Our hurting others, hurting ourselves as we become what we hate, in order to try and head it off. Out of fear, what if we lose? What applies in the public context, we can also apply personally, uh, in our private context, in personal relationships as well. So much conflict happens because people are scared of being hurt. What if I depend on somebody and they don't follow through for me? What if I reach out to somebody and they turn away from me? We end up distancing ourselves preemptively, pushing them away to test them to see if they'll come back, hurting others, hurting ourselves, because we're scared. And I'm highlighting the kind of the more cognizant, even though these things themselves are often more subconscious than conscious, there's actually something even deeper underlying that. These immediate practical concerns of fear of the loss of control or a fear of just unfamiliarity uh, is underlined for Christians uh, by the, the fear that God won't take care of us. At its root, when you find yourself scared or anxious in an uncertain environment, ask yourself, what am I afraid of? Am I afraid that I'm going to get fired? Or am I afraid that God won't take care of me? Am I afraid uh, that the bill from the mechanic is going to be astronomical? Or am I afraid that God won't take care of me? You know, realize this is a God issue, actually. Now we can talk about Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah went through this. Jeremiah was trying to give a faithful witness to lead a godly life and to speak a godly word to an ungodly culture. And he faced all kinds of resistance. He was looked down on, mocked, hated. And it was hard. He felt like the life was getting sucked out of him. And so he complained to God, will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? In other words, are you going to be a water source that dries up in the middle of summer? They think desert agriculture, uh, are you going to be something I can't depend on? Something that promises provision, but then disappears when I need it most. He was scared that God wouldn't take care of him, that he was following God in vain. But God responded. He encouraged Jeremiah, first of all, quit talking crazy, And speak my word. Continue uh, to give a faithful witness. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. God gave Jeremiah his promise that he could Depend on God uh, to save and deliver him. In Jesus' example, in our gospel lesson, we get that same thing displayed by Peter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus told him, You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter was scared, afraid, because he had set his mind on earthly things rather than things of God. But Jesus knew that he had to die. He must die, it says. He had to die to win the victory that would last beyond this life, to lose the battle, to win the war. That victory that he won was not just for himself, but for us, so that our lives, even in this life, are defined not by winning or losing in this life, but by the eternal victory we have in Christ, which frees us to live not in fear of losing, but in love for God and our neighbor. That's what this is all about, recognizing that this life is not about winning and losing. Oh, we can live out of love rather than fear because we were never going to live it the, win at this life anyway. And because Jesus has already won for us. And really what it, it boils down to, I think, is what does it mean to win at life? It's an important question uh, because we all want to succeed, but also because we all at times feel like we're losing it. Uh, whatever it may be, whether broadly speaking, losing it life or uh, losing it some area of it, losing it love, losing professionally, losing your kids, losing your health, losing your independence. And no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you feel like it just gets worse. And you think, God, I'm losing it. Will you be, uh, to me, an unreliable source of blessing? The truth is, we have the victory in Christ. And that victory comes with the realization that it's not in this life or through this life that we have the victory and because we live in a broken world that's not going to fix itself. But we have the hope of a world to come in which all things will be repaired. Speaking of being fixed, you could say this life is kind of like a casino, just fixed in a different way. The house always wins, Right? If you look at the casino or the racetrack as a reliable source of constant income, guess what? You're going to lose everything. And people will tell you, no, no, I've got a system. Read my book, use my system, and you can take the casinos for all they're worth. But it's a lie. And people will tell you the same lie about life. Hey, I have a system. Read my book, use my system, and you can take life for all it's worth. But Jesus says, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Uh, Whoever's uh, looking to win at this life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it see, we spend so much time trying to gain things, we're just immediately going to lose right again afterwards. Because the truth is, nobody wins at life. Nobody wins at life. The death rate is 100%. You may have some wins along the way, but you're ultimately going to end up broke. You don't win at life. There are full cemeteries in every town to prove it. Uh, Everyone loses at at life in the end because everyone loses their life. It's not a game you can win. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. Hope for the future, hope for the present. It just means that we shouldn't look at, at life as something we can expect or try to win at or try and find hope in how we seem to be winning or not. It means we look at life as a gift from God, that we live and pursue out of love for God and the gift he's given us. And Back when I was at seminary uh, in St. Louis, we had a, a basketball team. It wasn't a great team, uh, but it, I wasn't good enough to be on it. Uh, the, uh, every year, though, they had an exhibition game against the intramural all-stars, and I was good enough to make that team. And that was a big deal because we all wanted to prove, well, I, I wasn't on the seminary team just because I chose not to be. Uh, if we can actually contend with them, if we can beat them, boy, that would be something. Well... Uh, like I said, it was, I was not good enough to be on that team, and they were a lot better than us. It quickly became apparent as the game went on that the intramural squad was outclassed and tried hard to compete with the technical expertise of the seminary team, but it, it was no good. And there was still a substantial amount of time left in the game when it became clear that uh, not only was it unlikely we would win, it was statistically impossible that we could win. You just can't score that many points uh, in that amount of time to erase that bigot deficit. And you could see a lot of the intramural players were kind of starting to give up. Okay, we learned our lesson. But you know, that was a part of the game where I started having the most fun. Because when it wasn't about winning or losing anymore, it was just for love of the game. I started having more fun, I got more energy, I was racing up and down the court to play in defense. Uh, I'd like to say it paid off and I got a steal and went to the other end and dunked it or something. But I don't even remember, actually, because that wasn't the point anymore. It was just for fun. And it was fun then. And uh, this has a point, in case you were wondering, and I'm finally getting to it, uh, that when you realize the game is no longer winnable and you're not competing for that one-upmanship that relaxes you and releases you to enjoy it. Uh, And the same is true of life. When we don't live for the scoreboard, when we don't live like the goal of life is to win somehow, when we live just out of love for God and for neighbor, uh, that's when it it really becomes a blessing. And it doesn't mean you don't try to do well at it, to make a basket or to uh, make a positive difference in the world. Uh, it just means that whether you, you do or don't find a cure for cancer or raise five kids who all still go to church or whatever goal you set, whether you succeed or fail is not the point uh, because Christ's success is ours. And we're just living for the love of it, uh, for the love of him and what he has given to us, which puts a face, and that's the point of all these, to kind of put a face on those scriptures from Romans 12 if I bless my enemies instead of fighting fire with fire, they'll win. Okay, who cares? It's a meaningless victory. Uh, I'll be living. I'll be loving. If I submit to my husband or if I sacrifice for my wife, they'll win. So? So? I'll be living, I'll be loving, I'll be winning. If I contribute to the needs of the saints, I'll lose from my wealth. So you'll be living, you'll be loving. It's not a competition. If I outdo someone in showing honor, they're actually the winner. So it's not a competition. Just do it for the love of it. When we live in love rather than fear, uh, we have so much blessing, and we have every reason to do so, uh, that refusing to play the world's game of winning and losing at life, you're, you're giving up nothing but a delusion, because uh, like it says, we're, we're never going to win it, this life anyway. Uh, Giving up on that idea of winning and losing in life, uh, which is doomed to futility, uh, is just giving up on chasing a dream, as the author of Ecclesiastes would remind us. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless at chasing after the wind. Uh, But it's still full of joy because it's living in the consciousness that Jesus actually did win. Not a meaningless world like the world's victories, a a gain that is immediately going to be lost shortly thereafter. Uh, Not just like dying with the most sports cars in your garage. Jesus actually won eternal life for us by living a perfect life, dying a perfectly innocent death to pay the price for our sin, and rising again from the dead to ascend to heaven and rule all things for the sake of his church so that we can stop thinking about winning and losing, stop bearing that burden of labor that doesn't belong to us and is fruitless anyway. We can put away the scoreboard and just live like someone who has been given eternal life. And May that peace is beyond all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until the day of his glorious return. Amen.